Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. Kylie Fraser is a co-founder of Flying Fox Ventures, an early stage venture capital firm, which makes it easy for private investors to build their own diversified technology investment portfolios. Flying Fox has invested in more than 30 great Australian startups, including Fresh Equities, Jigspace, GoTerra and Mr Yum, making material capital contributions to their growth journeys. Flying Fox's model is designed to focus exclusively on early stage tech investments, long recognised as one of the most prospective, yet neglected segments of the Australian venture capital market. Passionate about introducing more investors to the joys of early stage tech investing, Kylie is a regular contributor at Australia's leading investor education providers, including the Wade Institute's VC Catalyst, the Australian Graduate School of Management's Angel Education Program, and Scale Investor's very own InvestEd program. Kylie brings empathy to the founder experience, having founded two technology businesses herself. She has almost two decades experience as a corporate transactions lawyer. And just as I could have nerded out with her about tax law and web free all day, there's almost no topic about which she does not have a very thoughtful and well-considered opinion. Hi, Kylie. It's so good to see you. We're just coming out the back of a long period of spending time in our homes. How have you found the last sort of 18 months? <laughs> that is a big question to start with. It's been pretty crazy, to tell you the truth. Professionally, it's been fantastic. Business has been great. Technology hasn't slowed down and so many of our companies have experienced really fantastic tailwinds, which is exciting. And and we've been lucky enough to work with a number of them to help them really capture that. But personally, like disaster. I'm sick of my children. I'm sick of my husband. I know I'm very lucky to have all that support around me, but um. Hmm, too much of a good thing. And I am acutely aware of the value that, that schools and teachers play in our lives. Yeah, it was really funny. I caught up with some girlfriends for dinner for the first time in months and months, obviously. And um, there was this sort of exchange around the group like, yeah, so good to not have your husband as the only adult that you talk to in real life every day. It's um, a remarkable experience. We are so sick of each other, but also like a, a little bit like overly bonded as well. Like there were times where like he'd go to the supermarket and call me three times. It's like, you're going to the supermarket for an hour. Like, just leave me alone. Bless him. I hope he doesn't listen to this. <laughs> uh, pretty game to start a new business in the middle of the current environment. 
what was your sort of thinking pattern about launching Flying Fox? So I started Eleanor Venture in 2019 before any of us were thinking about global pandemics and we'd been in market for less than six months. I think we'd made about six investments at that time when, you know, lockdown started bearing down on us in in March 2020. And I kind of thought at that time, "Hmm, well, you know, we had a good run, you know, we we made some investments and and, and that was great. No one's going to want to deploy capital in this market. So we'll go to bed and and work on the companies that we've invested in and, and see what happens on the other side. But like any good founder, after kind of having having that thought to myself, I thought, oh, I wonder what my investors think. I wonder what my customers think. And I had 40 investors at that time, which I thought was, you know, just fantastic that 40 people had trusted me with their capital. And I rang each and every one of them to see, you know, kind of what they were thinking and kind of assure them that even though, you know, no one knew what was going to happen next, that I, I was committed to helping these companies that we'd invested in grow and, and work through whatever was in front of us. And without exception, all of them said, don't stop, keep going. You know, we're super excited for what's coming next. Like, keep bringing us deals. We're ready to deploy And it really kind of fired me up and it made me really think about the the beauty of being able to invest through cycles and to take a more holistic approach to, to investing rather than just thinking I am a startup investor and I play in this very limited part of the market in a very limited way really made me think about, you know, this is just you know one asset class that can be broken down into a number of different subsets and different investors are trying to access different pieces at different times and how can we invest through cycles to deliver you know maximum value to those that are still keen to to extract value from this sector so which is a very long-winded way of saying that we saw the pandemic as an opportunity from pretty early on but only after some some guidance from our customers. <laughs> I love the sort of focus on customers, which fascinates me because you started off life as a lawyer and mm-hmm. lawyers don't have a reputation for being customer-centric necessarily. So can you talk us through firstly how you became a lawyer and then how you made that transition from being that sort of professional to, to who you are now? It's funny. So I, I became a lawyer by accident. I got the marks to, you know, kind of do whatever I wanted and, you know, didn't like, didn't like blood, didn't want to do medicine, so I thought law would be more flexible. So were you the sort of nerdy, smart kid at school or were you one of those kids who just could do everything easily and were popular and... No, no, I, I was pretty nerdy. I was not an athlete. I grew up in, in a small town on the central coast where, you know, sports ruled. So not being able to, to catch a ball was certainly not cool. I was a ballet dancer when I was a kid. So that kept me kind of out of the mainstream social groupings that you kind of experience in small coastal towns. I didn't have to hang around the beach and date surfers because... I was either reading books or 
dancing, which um, yeah, which was fun. So not puberty blues for you. No puberty blues, sadly. Although I am still like really fond of a hot chip roll, like you know, like that ghetto coastal town snack. So good. Dollar fifty back in my day, but I just it's been a while since I bought one. We make them at home quite regularly. So good. <laughs> so you sort of were the star of I mean presumably ducks of your school if you got the marks to do whatever you wanted at the end of your high school you were sort of the surprise packet that got to do whatever why did you choose law just because it was the next highest thing I thought it would give me the maximum amount of flexibility I, I didn't have a clear picture of what I wanted to do At the time, I thought I wanted to either be a diplomat or a foreign aid worker. I was filled with the glorious zeal of of youthful enthusiasm and and wanting to save the world, as as many of us do at at that age. I applied to DFAT when I was at uni. I didn't get in, which was the first time... If I'm honest, it had never really crossed my mind that I wouldn't get in. I just thought I will apply for this and I will get in and I will be a diplomat because, you know, I am awesome. I'd also managed to do at university all my elective subjects. My honours thesis were very much skewed towards, you know, human rights and Indigenous affairs and, you know, I was very clearly very left-wing and, you know, I don't know why that with retrospect it was like there was no way you were going to get a job in the Howard government at that time. Like what were you thinking? When I, I didn't get into DFAT, I decided to kind of um, do some aid work, which which I dabbled in throughout my, my last year at uni. I actually spent one of my, my second last year of uni over in South America and picked up some aid projects around the side of that, which which was super fun. And after I spent spent two years in South America overall, and kind of ran out of money, and thought, well, maybe it's time to come home and and get a real job. I'll dust off this law degree for a year or two, earn some money, and then come back and and keep living that contract international response lifestyle. But I never did. I never went back, which is is not a regret. I think, um, you know, life just took me elsewhere. And so corporate law for how long before you got the itch to do something of your own? A solid 10, 12 years before I went on maternity leave. I loved it. Law gets a bad rap. I've told this story to, to friends and family. They were, they always kind of give me that look like, oh, you just got sucked in and, you know, your life got taken away from you. Like, I loved being a transaction lawyer. It was great fun. I travelled a lot. I worked with great people. It was all about team dynamics and negotiation, you know, the, like real people skills, somewhat affectionately referred to as a personality lawyer, you know, perhaps not the most technical lawyer out there. So I had had a lot of responsibility for um, client relationships and bringing in work, not just sitting in a back office, dotting the I's and crossing the T's, which, which probably made it more fun. And I was at the, um, at the kind of vanguard of the Australian resources boom and spent a lot of time in North Asia and China 
putting together some of those early deals in, in the resource sector, which was super fun. And the reason why I got that, everything is always linked. The reason why I was so good at that, because when I was trotting around South America, one of the contracts that I took and the, the most common contract I took was as a, as a translator. So even though I didn't speak a word of Mandarin, I was very good at breaking down complicated language into simple language. You know, I was one of the first English-speaking lawyers in China selling Australian merger opportunities to be able to take Chinese state-owned enterprises through what is the Australian merger environment, what, it, what does Chapter 6 of the takeovers of the Corporations Act look like? How does the takeovers panel make decisions? You know, like what are unacceptable circumstances? All these like deeply technical concepts I was able to break down into simple language, which I think stood me well. All that aid work, all that digging ditches in in high humidity environments really did come in handy. I mean, it's funny because we often say when people are aspiring writers, for example, you know, write what you know. And I think, you know, from what I've heard about your first foray into business, you started with something that was quite sort of similar on the outside to, you know, what you'd been doing before. It was sort of in the legal industry. But I've also heard you say that that wasn't, in some ways, wasn't ideal, that it was sort of a bit close to what you'd been doing before to actually be a business rather than just sort of selling your own services. Can you sort of talk to that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So we started Frankly Work as an early innovation lab for professional service firms. So the people that I were selling to were my former partners, people whose opinion I cared perhaps too much about to iterate and fail. And fail I did, don't get me wrong, but it it hurt more than it should have. And I probably held me back from taking risks that I needed to. Timing is everything in startups and frankly was probably just far too early to, to have ever really have been a success. But I was certainly not as tenacious as I think I would have been if I hadn't have been so worried about what people thought of me. Which is funny because when we're looking at startups now, we're always looking for that. What is your personal connection to this problem? Why is this your problem to solve? Out of all the problems in the world to work on, why are you the person for this one? Like we, we spend so much time thinking about that. And we always need to balance the yin with the yang, right? You can always have too much of a good thing. Things come full circle. And whilst founder problem fit is important you don't it can have adverse consequences too and do you think that's more pronounced in some sort of industry sort of high status hierarchy industry so academia or law or other sort of professions where that sort of esteem of your superiors is so valued Absolutely. Medicine's the worst. My second startup was in medicine and no one wanted to look stupid. I'd learned my lesson by then. I was ready to look stupid in front of everyone and I'm not from a medical background, so I cared even less, um, but had, had learned this lesson firsthand. We have to get out there. We have to push ourselves. You know, this is a startup. It's not about your reputation. It's about solving a problem for your customers. 
in my experience, it is very much more pronounced in, in some of those professions. So tell us about that second startup. It was radiology. Is that right? Second opinion of radiology scans. So yeah, I met my co-founder at business school and then promptly dropped out, which felt, you know, gloriously reckless at the time. <laughs> and I had no background in, in radiology, but, but we started working on a second opinion service. We, it was kind of in the early days of, of kind of radiology automation and there was lots of talk about is a, a fully autonomous radiology robot possible and I got super excited about building a very clean structured data set because that's what second opinions allows you to do right you've got two opinions so you can see where the correlations are it's just this beautiful data set to train AI and I went very, very deep down that path. But the product that we had built was, you know, was effectively a telemedicine tool. And it was making money for radiologists. And it comes down to what is the definition of success for co-founders? And we probably had slightly different definitions of what success looks like. That took us down different paths. So I, I exited that that business. Learned a lot about the importance of timing because to exit a telemedicine business on the on the cusp of a global pandemic hurt. It gave me the, the experience and, and the kind of capital I needed to, to get started in investing, which was which was a blessing in the end. And just in terms of that relationship between co-founders, is there something that you look for now in terms of signals about whether the co-founders are really genuinely aligned? Yeah, it's we, we spend so much time thinking about team dynamics because it's, it's so easy to get wrong. We, we, you know, we like them to have had a history of resolving conflict together. And I think that's... That's quite common amongst most investors. You know, everyone knows that, you know, teams are going to face conflict and how are they how are they going to work through these things together. But I don't think as many investors focus on varying models of success because we all know that startups take twists and turns and there's many ways these things can end up. And, and if, if the founders aren't aligned on what success looks like over time, it can unravel pretty quickly. It's hard though because you ask a founder that, you know, like and, and the, the common way investors test for this is, you know, like if I was to give you $50 million today, would you sell? And all the founders say, no, of course not because this is my life's work and this is what I'm going to do. Like So, you know, there's the rote answer. How do you really test for that? Because what success looks like to me personally changes over time. It's the same for 99% of the people. I'm sure there are some laser focused people out there who, you know, who don't change over time. But on the whole, most of us, things move on, things change. So how do you really nail someone to what their long term definition of success is, is, is a super interesting question. And one I, I don't have a good answer to, but it involves looking at, 
at a person's experiences, you know, what, what have they been through? What is their toolkit to manage change as it comes through and, and how much is that going to shift them from their path? And, and maturity comes into it as well because, you know, when, when you get to our age, Catherine, we've, we've seen some, some things, you know, we've had a lot thrown at us. I like to think I'm still capable of deviation, but it's unlikely to be as radical as aid worker to venture capitalist again, you know, like those big swings of what what success looks like just become less likely as we get older. Yeah, I mean, that's so fascinating because I think, you know, consistency is good but then you're really looking for founders that have a growth mindset and have that sort of flexibility mentally to be able to accommodate change and to grow. And so someone, as you say, if they're too focused on a fixed outcome, that's probably a worry in itself. But I'm super interested in that question about maturity and sort of maturity versus age. Mm. What's your sort of view in terms of thinking about what the ideal founder is that you're looking for we are about to issue a term sheet to a 19 year old founder who will be our youngest and we almost fell over when when we found out how old this person was but we're like wow at no stage did their maturity come into question and they had a demonstrated track record age just didn't really come into it until the end and then I think We've invested in companies with with founders who are in their 50s. I don't think there's an ideal age. I think it's just about having, ideally, you want them to have enough experience to know how to cope with bad times. Age can be an easy proxy for that because, you know, we've we've seen more, we've done more. It's not the only one. I'm, I'm interested in your, the skill development from moving from being an operator to being a full-time investor. And and I've heard you before talk about some sort of useful practical hacks that you use to sort of build up your skills and pattern recognition in terms of what makes a good investor. Are you able to share some of that? I'm not sure what you I'm trying, trying to think of what, what, what I've said in the past. That you joined a whole heap of angel groups. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did, I did, which was great, um, you know, to be able to learn from the mistakes of others, not just myself, because angel investing is an expensive sport, especially when you start out and we're all coming with this, you know, preconceived idea that we have to invest big checks to earn our seat at the table because, you know, keeping a, a streamlined cap table is so important for, for founders. That is important. It can be hard to earn your right onto the cap table with a small check. But you're going to make so many mistakes at the start that you have to find a way to learn with small checks. Angel investing is an experiential learning business we need to learn by doing but it hurts far less to do that with five thousand dollar checks than with fifty thousand dollar checks the ecosystem has evolved in over the last couple of years so there's there's plenty of ways where you can do that now which is which is awesome 
You've talked before about sort of the practical reason why having a messy cap table is bad for founders. Can you sort of just explain why it's important that you have a tidy cap table? The main reason is because you, you only have 50 places on that cap table to get through to an IPO, basically. Um, so at, at 50 members, your company becomes a public company, which means that it's subject to extra regulation, including the takeover provisions of the Corporations Act, which make it almost impossible to raise capital from traditional venture markets. So in their first round, they, they might want to take 10 small check investors because they don't have any choice, but they can't keep doing that or they will blow up their cap table. It will then require someone to come in and fix it. They can certainly be streamlined. You know, people can put a nominee in or, or the company may spin up, you know, a trustee as part of its ESOP that can push some of those investors into a single structure. It can be done. It's normally pretty messy and pretty painful. And you've got to find someone who is willing to do that work for you. We've done it a few times at, at Eleanor and now Flying Fox for portfolio companies that, that we've really wanted to invest in because our model actually lends itself to investing as single entry on the cap table. And every now and then I pine for some detailed legal work and decide to just r roll something up myself for, for sport, keep my skills current. But it's pretty messy. It's pretty thankless. It, given the choice between a company that didn't need me to do that work and one that did, I'm always going to choose the easy option. I love that you say you sometimes pine for detailed legal work because I reckon you're the, the you know the, you're the queen of the term sheet. I've watched about four <laughs> videos of yours, sort of walking through term sheets, and and a long, long time ago. Well, I did a law degree, and every time I listen to one of your videos, I'm like, oh, there's another thing I don't understand. <laughs> so can you just sort of highlight, especially from a founder's perspective, the bits of the term sheet you think they really need to understand and, and the bits where they probably get tripped up being forewarned is forearmed? Yeah, I, I think term sheets for a price round, there's actually – far fewer ways to get into trouble than safes these days. From a founder perspective, the, the number one problem is that they don't understand how much equity they are selling. And that's because they haven't modelled out the round correctly or they don't understand the implications of putting in an ESOP. So that's an employee share scheme? Yeah, 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 yeah. So an incoming investor will normally require that a company puts in an ESOP to allow for um, future employees to, to participate in the equity ownership of the company, which, which is a good thing because incentives are aligned and startups don't have lots of capital to attract the best talent and the best talent understands that equity is where the value is over here in our ecosystem. So it's a very good thing, but that comes out of the pre-money valuation, which dilutes the existing investors. So in, in the first round, it dilutes the founders, but not the incoming investors, which is very standard. And it's very hard to argue against that. 
but founders need to understand it before they go into these negotiations because, you know, they are the ones being diluted, normally not many others. The other way that ownership mechanics are constantly kind of tested are are in the context of a safe where people don't fully understand the pre-money, post-money distinction. And pre-money, post-money on on a price round is super easy. You know, if my pre-money valuation is $4 million and I raise $1 million, my post-money valuation is $5 million. Super easy. And people bring that knowledge to a safe and think they know what they're doing. And no one does. And I spend so much of my time doing conversion maths for startups that have raised multiple safes without truly understanding how much equity they have given away in each round. And sometimes the investors don't understand what they've done either. It's not like, you know, like there's these predatory investors out there who are investing all this money on a safe. They just don't understand. It doesn't help that template document that's most commonly used in Australia, which is the AIC template documents over on the AIC website. They are pre-money safe, but people are immersed in tech Twitter and, and have assumed that safes have been standardised and the YC safe document, which which is, of course, a US document, but that's a post-money safe. And the YC document's great. You can make plenty of assumptions based on the YC safe. That's not the document we use here. And it's not that the YC safe is good and our safe is bad. They are just different and they have different consequences and they need to be used differently. And understanding how they work on conversion goes to the heart of how much equity a founder will own in their company at the end of the day. Given that a SAFE is a simple agreement for future equity and it's supposed to be a sort of light touch way to enable venture investments into early stage companies, do you think that it's sort of become a bit counterproductive that actually the use of SAFEs means that there's sort of a bit more confusion creeping into the system than maybe the price round that seems like it's been a bit more standardised or, you know, are we just in a transition period? It's interesting to think about. I think the answer is is probably both. I think in the US, safes have been standardised to the point where they are able to be used far more efficiently than they are here. We could move to a period of standardisation. I guess someone would need to take the the lead role and issue, you know, this is the safe and the rest of us would need to all get on board and use it. That's possible. There are plenty of times where pricing around is, it can be hard. There are many commercial reasons why both parties may prefer to delay that valuation conversation so that they should be and they can be a really important instrument but they they have just so much complexity has crept in not to the time of issue but to the time of conversion I think we just just need to be be mindful of that it's always the first investors on the price rounds are always the ones that are there with their head in their hands going, oh, it's my job to explain to you what, what you've already done. It's not fun. 
whenever a deal comes across your desk and you could wave your magic wand and have whatever structure and agreement you liked, what's your sort of fantasy structure that you prefer? I'm a simple guy. For all my ragging on the AIC safe, their priced round documents are, are pretty good. There's a few tweaks that we need to make, but, but I think they're, they're a great base for the most part. I am an angel investor first and foremost, so I like priced rounds because I like ESIC tax concessions. And if I can, you know, get a 20% tax offset and not pay CGT, I'm going to do that. And I see too many founders not understanding the thresholds that are relevant to the ESIC tax concessions. And there's always flexibility in how you manage your ESIC status and being kind of aware of it, managing to it, knowing which investors it's going to be important to is not something that I see spoken enough on the on the kind of startup circuit. And just to be clear, the problem with a safe is that you can't be eligible for asset tax concessions as an investor at the point of a safe being issued. You're only eligible for those once the safe converts, assuming the company is still within those thresholds. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So as the investor, you're taking a risk that the company will be eligible at the time of conversion, which who knows when that will be in, in most safes. It's, it's an indeterminate date in the future. So it's just, it's just leaving money on the table, I think, which none of us like to do. And again, just to be clear, it's not an immediate benefit for the founder, for their company to be ESIC compliant, but presumably it makes them more attractive to investors. Is that the way you think about it? Yeah. I mean, there, there's sadly very few tax benefits for founders, which is something that I hope will be addressed in, in years to come. ESIC makes you more attractive to angel investors and increasingly as we are seeing more innovation in fund structures in Australia you will be surprised what type of structures are actually using ESIC rather than just individuals you know we have super angel syndicates we have rolling funds even some vintage funds SPVs that are, are spun up to co-invest alongside any of these vehicles or a VC fund itself you know all of these vehicles can want to utilize the ESIC tax concession so even if you're like oh I don't want to mess around with angel investors I just want to go straight to a fund straight to a VC it may look like a fund and talk like a fund but actually still want the ESIC tax concessions underneath that. I could talk about tax concessions all day. It's so sexy. I love this interview. It's my favourite. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not very popular at parties because talking about tax is one of my favourite things. But I'll be your date, Kathy. Oh, don't worry. Fantastic. <laughs> we can hang around in the kitchen and eat the chips and talk tax. I liked your, you know, point then that that you know, first and foremost, you're an angel investor. What's in your mind the sort of key differences between what angels are looking for and what a venture capital fund might be interested in and, and the way they think about investing that's different from angels? I think the key difference is flexibility. 
So with angels, we have the ability to determine for ourselves what a good deal looks like. And part of that is balancing the risk versus return profile. So for a venture fund, they almost without exception look for venture scale returns, which means that every company that they invest in has to have the ability to return the entire fund. They have to be a unicorn. And a venture fund very much expects that many of the companies that it invests in will fail along the way. And they don't care. As as long as they have the ability to be a unicorn, they're prepared to accept those failures. In fact, the ones that kind of hang out in the middle, um, which which are sometimes called, you know, zombie portfolio companies, are, you know, every VC has a plan to manage those those zombie companies to a resolution because they're a real thorn in their sides. Angel investors can, you know, they don't have to take such an aggressive view on risk versus return we will quite often invest in a company that that we know is probably not going to be a unicorn, but we can see some outsized returns there. There's still plenty of growth there and perhaps we can see a shorter path to exit. We don't want all of our portfolio companies to be that kind of risk return profile. We want to make sure we've still got some unicorn potentials in the mix, but we just got more flexibility to craft our portfolios um, according to our own risk appetite, which which I think is pretty cool. And is that sort of a reflection that angels don't really have anything to prove in a way that, you know, we're not reporting to anyone else, maybe our spouses, but, you know, we don't have that same pressure to say to unit holders, this is the return on a time-weighted basis so we can afford to have companies we really love and believe in that might have a lower return profile, we can continue to support and invest in because it's meaningful for us. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's it's about what's meaningful for you and how flexible you are in your time horizons. So we, not through Flying Fox, but personally, you know, we, we invested in a company recently that it was very hard to see it being a path to a unicorn, but I could see a very clear path to a very clear exit within three years that, you know, on, on my back of the envelope was going to be somewhere between, you know, kind of five to eight. There's no guarantees in these things, but that's that's great. You know, like for my own money, like I'm very happy to take that punt. That would be a terrible outcome for a venture firm. Um, they, they just wouldn't even look at it. So the flexibility as to outcome and timing is is important. Because while I want to take some short-term bets because I, I like my capital to be recycled, I'm also happy for some of it to just sit there, you know, and if, if a company's doing really well, I don't want to be pressured to take it out in 10 years and 
you know, more and more venture funds are coming up with ways to kind of game that 10-year life cycle of a fund anyway, because the, the general consensus is that it's it's pretty outdated. You know, Sequoia obviously um, did it rather spectacularly recently with declaring its its mega fund and, and the, the death of the, the 10-year 10 10-year life cycle fund. But yeah, there, there's other ways in which it's been approached to in, in perhaps a less dramatic fashion, like um, you know, people like Blackbird do it, doing their strip sale and and making sure that that LPs were seeing returns in a way that allowed them to kind of you know double down on on some of those longer term yields on their outliers. For someone who started, I mean, you've got a really strong focus on social equity, and you started with sort of humanitarian work. One of the things I love about you is you're very proud to sort of say, I'm here to make money. You're not apologetic. <laughs> um, and and I suppose what I like about it is because I think um, it proves something can work if someone's prepared to pay you for the problem that you're trying to solve. Can you talk about those things, sort of, you know, your social conscience going together with, with a desire to, for it to be an economically sustainable proposition? I think there are there are non-financial incentives to angel investing that should not be discounted and for many people those incentives may be more important than the financial incentives but if they are not at least in part incentivized by the financial return then there is probably a better way for them to get social to, to get that non-financial return in other areas, whether it's straight philanthropy, whether it's volunteering, like whatever it is, mentoring. That there are plenty of ways to participate in this ecosystem without being an investor. I think that to be an investor, it implies a, a, a desire for a financial return. And I don't think we need to shy away from that. It's okay to want to make money here because that's what the founders are here for. We're not founding charities. You know, it's all well and good to be, you know, a for-purpose company. We can do good while we make money. But secrets in the name, you know, we're venture capitalists. That's what we're here to do. This is the pointy end of capitalism. And if you're not here to make money, then it's probably not the right place. Make money, lose money, can go either way. But I don't want to discount the non-financial incentives, but ignoring the financial incentives just doesn't make any sense to me. Right at the moment, it feels like there's been this enormous power shift between founders and investors. and, And it seems like there's a lot of money trying to find the best deals. And so for founders, there's more of an opportunity to really interview investors, if you like, to find the ones that are the best fit for them. Do you have any advice for founders in terms of what they should be looking for or what questions they should be asking of investors to sort of flush out who the right fit for them is? I would qualify that a little bit before answering the question to say that that is true for the top 5% of companies maybe, for the vast bulk of founders, it's still going to be a really hard slog and most of us will take the money from 
whoever agrees to give us a check. That is still very much the norm. And, and for the founders that are out there who are, you know, beating themselves up because they don't have money being thrown at them, you know, like you're still in the majority, don't worry. You know, like that's it's a very privileged position to be in, to, to be able to diligence your investor and decide if they're a good match. But yeah, that aside, in, in an ideal world, for the rarefied few, the, the single most important question to ask is, what have you invested in, in the last six months? And keeping it time bound is important because it shows how active they are. If they won't give you specific names, chances are the the answer to that is none because we are all super proud to, to rub it on and on and on about the investments that we've made. So it's a bit of a giveaway if, if you can't get a straight answer out of an investor. And yeah, particularly with angels, let, let's go with, with venture firms. But you know, be, being an angel investor is a privilege, but it's also super cool and super fun. And there's plenty of people who love the kind of promise and the allure of angel investing, but you know they they can't quite keep up with the with the investing part. You know, like they may not have the the, the resources to write as many checks as they would in an ideal world. It can be incredibly frustrating for founders who don't know what an individual's capacity to write checks is when when they're, you know, kind of starting their fundraising process. You know, you can't spend an hour with every person who has the capacity to write two five thousand dollar checks a year. You'd go crazy. So I think that founders are well within their rights to ask investors you know about what their recent investment history has been and if you're a founder that's never raised capital before and you're talking to someone who says oh in the last six months I've done two property developments and I bought a racehorse (laughs) should you run for the hills (laughs) I I would I, I I most certainly would but yeah, I mean, look, there are yeah. I, I actually, I'm just going to leave it, leave it at yes, and not not dig into that one further. What other advice have you got for founders who are thinking about raising capital? Run it through a process. Um, you know, tr- tr- don't um, don't. Sorry, my um, dogs, dogs barking. Um, Front door, dog barking. It's it's you know so 2021. <laughs> Um, uh, the more you can run it to a tight process, the more chance you have of having term sheets and offers to invest land at the same time. So depending on you know how much you're raising and, and who you're targeting, the, the, the timelines will vary. But think about trying to hit everyone within the same two to three week period for first chats and give yourself no more than two or three meetings per day and give yourself a day in between to kind of refine your deck and refine your Q&A because you will learn something from each pitch as you go through that process. You don't want to just give yourself 10 back-to-back meetings because you you, you won't give yourself the time to to go back and, and refine. Start with the ones that you want least because you will suck at your first pitch or two you'll get better you'll have it nailed by pitch four or five 
So as an investor, I should be working on my pitch. I've got to make sure people know I've invested in some good stuff recently and try and make sure I'm at the end of the process, not the start. So I've got a reputation yeah. <laughs> that I'm okay. What books or podcasts would you recommend either to founders or to people who want to either become an angel investor or get better at it? I like Acquired, which is more for M&A boffins, but it tells the kind of history of some iconic, mostly Silicon Valley companies. That's a podcast, yep. That's a podcast, yep. I like Capital Allocators, which is more for investing nerds that that are interested in how LPs, you know, how do they choose which funds to invest in? So looking at it from that different lens, they've always got some really interesting perspectives for those of us that, that haven't considered it from, from the other side of the fence. Books-wise, I mean, kind of usual canons. Everyone reads Secrets of Sand Hill Roads and Venture Deals. They're, you know, a little bit dry, but if you need to understand the basics, they're a pretty good place to start. Last question, what are you really excited and optimistic about? I'm a full Web3 nerd. I know. <laughs> it's, um, I am so excited about yeah, everyone's talking about the metaverse um, this week in particular, so I, I, I'm trying not to use that word. But what happens when our digital lives become more as valuable to us as, as our physical lives is just such an interesting concept. And how do we bring value to digital spaces? How do we transport value between portable spaces? I just think that is so interesting because, you know, I see I see my kids doing it now. Um, they place far more value on, you know, on how they look in Roblox. They have spent far more money dressing their Roblox avatars than they, you know, than they spend on dressing themselves. I don't care what they go out the front door looking like, but, you know, their Roblox avatars got to have fresh skins. Thinking about how that translates to the future is is super interesting. And will you be looking for companies that are playing on that Web3? Oh, yes, oh, very much so. Super got, excited about that. Yeah, no, it's um, it's something we're, we're thinking about, looking at all the time and seeing more and more companies in the space, which is exciting. They tend to be even more expensive and they got more expensive just recently since um, everyone has metaverse fever. So I might have to look for somewhere else to hunt, but we've been we've been looking here for a while now. So we're, we're very... So excellent. I just love the work that you and Rachel, your business partner at Flying Fox are doing. So um, keep it up. No, thanks, Catherine. No, we're having, having lots of good fun, lots of good people around us. Well, it's great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Catherine. Take care. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive, like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs, Scale Founded, a five-day short course combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, Access, 
to an online education platform and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.